So this will be a review of gastroenterology literature for the second two weeks of June. Sorry, maybe I was a little lazy and didn't finish all the interesting stuff I read about in the last podcast, but there are a few more papers in CGH. And the first one from Evan Dellen's group in Chapel Hill argues that while six food elimination diet is similar in efficacy to using something like budesonide or fluticasone for the treatment of eosinophilic esophagitis, the cost utility is definitely on the side of the diet. What I've noticed that six food elimination diet was more of a treatment in academic centers and steroids were more often given in the community setting. Anyway, I think that the six food elimination diet long term is something better for the patient, especially when you succeed in finding one or maybe two foods that cause the disease. It's much easier to live the rest of your life knowing that you're allergic to milk or wheat. It's good to find out, and it's also less expensive. It turns out it's also cost effective. Yay. The next two papers are also from CGH, so let's just finish off that issue. What happened to the incidence and prevalence of Crohn's and UC in the United States? We know it's all going up. Well, Olmsted County Population Study has been a wealth of information for all sorts of things. And this next paper looks at Crohn's and UC statistics from 1970s to about 2010. So the incidence is 11 cases per 100,000 person years for Crohn's and 12 for UC. It's interesting. It's about the same. Prevalence was 247 per 100,000 for Crohn's and 435 for UC. And overall, the incidence and prevalence rose since 1970, almost doubling in numbers to once again around 11 for Crohn's and 12 for UC. How does this translate to the whole United States? This could mean that there's 1.6 million people with IBD in the United States. That's a lot of people. And more importantly, it's a lot of undiagnosed people who are yet to find out that they have the disease. As soon as FIT testing has become part of the USPTF guidelines, there's a study that poo-poos the FIT testing, basically saying that it ain't that great at detecting sessile serrated adenomas. That's no good. This study is out of Taiwan, claims that FIT testing has a sensitivity of about 6% for SSAs compared to about 21% for advanced adenomas. Just a reminder that FIT testing is thought to be better than FOBT because it directly assesses presence of human hemoglobin in stool. FIT testing was supposed to have about 95% specificity and sensitivity in the 70s compared to measly 33% for FOBT, and that's for colorectal cancer detection. Another good news about FIT is that it requires just one stool sample and no change in diet. So that's way better for patients. Anyway, there's some issues with the study with their overall adenoma prevalence in the 20% range compared to the United States, about 38%. Maybe something is off there. Another explanation is more mechanical. SSAs bleed much less than adenomas. So not surprising that FIT won't detect SSAs. Anyway, keep that in mind when sending your patients for FIT testing. So what's the best bowel prep regimen? I favor Miralax and Gatorade, which apparently is not FDA approved for this purpose, but thankfully costs almost nothing. So this study compares two intensive bowel cleansing regimens with patients who had a bowel prep that was inadequate. And I'll just read the conclusion, which is not a great surprise. After three-day low-residue diet and oral bisacodal before colonoscopy, colon cleansing with four-liter split-dose PEG was better than two-liter split-dose PEG plus ascorbic acid. Remember, this is a randomized trial, which, as Martha Stewart would say, is a good thing. Anyway, large-volume prep is usually better. This month's issue of ACG, the Red Journal, also has a review on acute fatty liver disease of pregnancy by the folks from Beth Israel Deaconess in Boston. I will just mention a few pearls on acute fatty liver of pregnancy here. So it is rare, 
about 1 in 15,000 cases, much less frequent than preeclampsia or HELP syndrome. Risk factors include multigravid state, if baby is male, if other liver disease is present, and history of acute fatty liver pregnancy. And you can distinguish it from HELP by looking for hypoglycemia, elevated INR, and encephalopathy, and maybe DIC. How do you cure it? You've got to deliver the baby. And there's a beautiful table in the text comparing AFLP, HELP, preeclampsia, and ICP. There's also such a thing as the Swansea criteria. Not Ron Swanson, the woodworker from Parks and Recs, but Swansea. And there's a debate out there how good these criteria are. I actually tried to look up what Swansea or who Swansea is. Couldn't find it. Is it a person, place, or thing? Don't know. If you know, let me know. Email me. An important pearl for the boards, and it was actually on my boards, I think, maybe? Can't remember. LCHADS, that is long-chain 3-hydroxyacyl coenzyme A dehydrogenase, the most important enzyme for the etiology of acute fatty liver pregnancy, and it catalyzes the third step of oxidation of long-chain fatty acids. And there's a defect in this gene with recessive inheritance of this gene in the infant, and this results in AFLP in the mother. Anyway, good article. So there's another study that I missed, but finally arrived to my mailbox. The title says it all. Disentangling the association between statins, cholesterol, and colorectal cancer, a nested case control study. And this piggybacks on many studies showing association between statin use and reduced cancer risk. Someone even had a bright idea to use statins as an adjunct to chemo which of course was a total failure. Anyway, the study in PLOS1 concludes that the risk of colorectal cancer was lower in statin users versus non-users. So if you're on a statin, your risk of colorectal cancer is lower. Great, but no difference was observed among those who continued versus those who stopped statin. So it means there's a bias there somewhere. And they actually go ahead and say that the undiagnosed malignancy lowering cholesterol is the real culprit for this bias. So statins kind of artificially protect you. Another quote from the article, decreases in total cholesterol by over one millimolar per liter, at least a year before the cancer diagnosis was associated with 1.25 fold to 2.36 fold increase of colorectal cancer in users and non-users of statin. So if suddenly your cholesterol starts falling, you may have cancer. People should apply this technique to PPIs and all the other crazy stuff that we use in GI that lately has been associated with all sorts of crazy conditions we treat, C. diff included. So C. diff Gary is making an appearance again. Another article that associates PPIs and recurrent C. diff infection is out. It's another meta-analysis, this time in JAMA Internal Medicine. I guess the variation on a theme here is the risk of recurrent C. diff and not just C. diff itself. So they looked at 16 observational studies, and what's the size effect we're talking about? Very tiny. The rate of recurrent C. diff goes up from 17 to 22% of patients on PPIs. Overall, odds ratio comes out to be 1.44, uh, with a P of 0.02, which is significant. The authors themselves admit that the data is crappy by basically admitting that there may be confounding since these are observational studies. Right there in the conclusions, they say this. For goodness sake, somebody do a randomized trial already. Once again, let's just give the PPIs to those who need them and take them away from those who don't. It's just common sense. There will be times when I dip into the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. At the beginning of the month, the report included a cluster of cases of Amanita phalloides mushroom poisoning. They describe a cluster of cases of mushroom poisoning that happened in December of 2016 in Northern California. And these people gathered some wild mushrooms, which sprouted all over after an unusually heavy rains, 
out of 14 cases reported, three received a liver transplant and all recovered, but one child had permanent neurological impairment. And just a reminder on how to treat this in case you encounter it. Overall, it's supportive care, just fluids, electrolyte replacement. But two agents should be considered as well. Number one is octreotide, which theoretically, by preventing emptying of the gallbladder, might reduce recirculation of the amatoxins in the bile to the liver. And this one is easy to get. But the second one, silibinin, milk thistle extract, and it's supposed to competitively inhibit hepatic amatoxin uptake and recycling. And it's supposedly available in the United States through an open clinical trial. I've never used it. And the report concludes, wild pick mushrooms should be evaluated by a trained mycologist before ingestion. I'm not sure where I get one of those, but they do appear to be handy. By the way, there's a case series of 92 cases of mushroom poisoning in this month's issue of Red Journal, but it's not very detailed. I don't think a month goes by without another article on treatment of NASH. This month's How I Approach It in the Red Journal is written by the folks from Virginia. They offer what they call a pragmatic approach to managing NAFLD. A few interesting points in their approach. Number one, they attack drinking alcohol not by amount, meaning 20 grams for women and 30 grams per day for men, but more on behavior surrounding alcohol, which I think is a great idea, and they have a nice table summarizing what things you should ask the patients. Basically, it's an extended cage kind of questionnaire. Then they basically stratify all patients into risk categories of low, intermediate, and high risk, The intermediate risk category is what I find interesting here. This category is basically folks with fibrosis but no cirrhosis. Maybe multiple features of metabolic syndrome are present and age is over 40. They basically outright say that the treatment is directed towards reducing disease activity with medications. So what meds are we supposed to use? Number one is vitamin E, which is supposed to increase resolution of steroid hepatitis at the cost of increase in all-cause mortality. So that's a no-go for me. Next one is pioglitazone, which is supposed to improve liver histology and may even improve fibrosis. This comes at the cause of increased weight gain, increased heart failure, osteopenia, and risk of fractures. This one is a no-go for me either. Plus, many of these folks already have diabetes and are on a ton of other agents for their diabetes. And if you start someone on pioglitazone, you may get an angry phone call from an endocrinologist telling you that you're out of your mind. I say the focus here should be on reducing burden of disease overall, improving cardiovascular health, and not focusing so much on the liver alone. Can't save the liver if the patient dies of a heart attack or infected diabetic foot ulcer. But this is just a country bumpkin gastroenterologist talking here. What do I know? They conclude that bariatric surgery should be considered in those who meet criteria. Now that's something I can get behind and fully support. If we are going to live in a Bayesian world, as we should, adjusting our statistics as to what we think is going on with the patient, it should be important for us to know not only the prevalence of disease, but also prevalence of different disorders occurring at the same time. Sometimes the disorders are linked, and this is often thought to be the case with celiac disease and small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, SIBO. Putting aside the notion as to whether SIBO is a real thing or not, whether you believe it or not, there's a study that came out of Italy which tries to figure out what the prevalence of SIBO is in the celiac patient population. And they conclude that about 20% of those with celiac disease actually end up having SIBO as well. And the study authors do state that SIBO should be considered only if celiac disease symptoms are not well controlled. Basically, don't just order SIBO testing willy-nilly on all your celiacs. So I think that's enough for the second half of June. Please tune in in July, where I'll review some more articles from the GI literature that comes into my mailbox every few days or so. Send me articles directly to my email, which you can find on the website, gipearls.com. Follow me on Twitter, GI underscore pearls. And if you like it, spread the word or leave a review on iTunes. Thanks very much for listening.